This is not the media. This is hell. Yesterday on This Is Hell, you heard sociologist Brown Boucher talk about truth and how it is not set in stone, that it is a horizon, a goal which we should constantly pursue but always be unable to achieve. That truth is a matter of history. It's a matter of context. It's a matter of place and of the people it affects and their perspective. That's not to say there is no truth, although social media investors would like you to think we do live in a post-truth world so they can make more money. Rather, that truth as a commodifiable object, one that one can own, can not only undermine the pursuit of truth, but it can squash the entire idea of trust. We've had guests explain that there is no singular socialism, that there are many socialisms, and in fact, you may have a socialism of your own that is unique to everyone else's. Today, we'll learn that there are also many feminisms, all dependent on their time, place, and the culture within which they emerge. Yes, with our apologies, whether it comes to truth or socialism or feminism, the world is a lot more complicated than the establishment network and cable TV news outlets lead you to believe. Yet, feminism generally is pretty straightforward and simple. Feminism is the shared insight that being a woman means disadvantage vis-a-vis men, that this can be addressed through struggle. Others defined being a feminist as what people call a woman who expresses sentiments that differentiate themselves, quote, from a doormat. With those definitions in hand, it's kind of hard to not describe yourself as a feminist because I think most people would agree that women are at a disadvantage to men in our society, that there has been success at challenging that inequality, and that women deserve to not be treated like a doormat to be walked all over. Feminism is anti-colonial. It's an act of self-defense, and far too often we think of it as Euro or North American-centric, when in reality, feminisms have been in the process of a global exchange of ideas that reshapes all feminisms. Feminism isn't perfect. No feminism is. Some have had horrible racist history and lacked inclusivity. Yes, feminism has expressed the same, experienced the same problems all of society has from racism to inequality. But all feminisms are always changing, evolving, and what feminism is in the very near future may not be what it is today. And that's what we're talking about today. Feminisms, as in plural, with historian Lucy DeLapp, author of Feminisms, A Global History. Lucy is reader and deputy chair of the Faculty of History at the University of Cambridge and teaches at Cambridge's Murray Edwards College as well. Lisa is also the author of the feminist avant-garde transatlantic encounters of the early 20th century and knowing their place domestic service in 20th century Britain. Follow Lucy on Twitter at S-U-F-F 66. That's Suff 66. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this morning's show, if it's Wednesday, it must be Richard Norwood. Richard, how are you? I'm well. Anything new by you? Not a whole lot. Plans for the holidays? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll be going to my parents in uh, Pittsburgh. Uh, Are so, you driving? Yes. Oh, yes. How long's the drive? Uh, it's eight hours, eight and a half hours. So you're just, just going to be seeing your folks or family as well? Yeah, no. Uh, hopefully it'll be pretty small. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say. Uh, so enjoying the snow this morning? Any problems driving over here where uh, the road's no, bad? It was, oh, no. It was, it's, it's just a light dusting. So. But far more but, important, but Richard. It, but it is the first. Snow, yes, it so is the first one. It, when I woke up at 5.04 this freaking morning, it hadn't snowed yet, but now it has. Richard, more importantly, what is this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, what's the best, <laughs> what's the best thing that happened to you in 2020? What's the best thing that happened to you in 2020? Will you be prepared to answer that question, Richard, after our guest? By the end of the show, yes. <laughs> the prince with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins. Your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to you for all of your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's tomorrow's show. Following 
Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth, when we will be announcing this week's winner. On this week's Moment of Truth, Jeff tells how he'll win the war. You are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Me Wrong. This is Hell. Uh, not only are we going to have more answers for the question from Hell from you, following our guest, but we are also going to be naming the 11th title in our list of our 12 favorite books to be featured here on This is Hell in interviews with their authors in 2020. We wrap up 2020 the way we do every year. We kind of, well, let me, let me explain. It, it, it's time for the final now quarterly review of the year. What you may have learned this fall during the autumn here on This Is Hell. We used to do these reviews like once a year, annual. That was it. Then the list of stuff learned got, it got too long. We started learning too much stuff. So the reviews became biannual. Then the learning, well, it's got out of control this year. And we now have to do these every three months from October through December and up to today and into tomorrow in the final quarter of 2020 here on This Is Hell. You and I together, we learned the police state has breached all borders and has now gone gone global. Breaking up monopolies is not only good for humanity, it's good for business too. It's a crime to save refugees fleeing for their lives on the open seas of the Mediterranean. Africa could be particularly vulnerable to the COVID-19 pandemic. With today's report in the New York Times of unequal vaccine distribution, that vulnerability may become gravely obvious very soon. U.S. regulators were fully aware five major global banks were moving around trillions of dollars in illicit cash. Before the major parties turned it into a profanity, populism originally meant equal rights to all, special privileges to none, which is why both Republicans and Democrats have always hated populism. Debt has too much power over us, and it's time we all engage in debt disobedience. Classism and racism are baked into public transit by technocrats for riders who are white, male, middle-class downtown workers instead of the people who depend upon and need mass transit the most. The poor. The Arctic is melting far too fast, and much faster than anyone thought even only a single year ago. The pandemic has pushed the problems with inequality to the fore, and we better do something about it before the next crisis hits, because inequality does not do well in a crisis. Blockchain is colonialism. It's another hustle. It's the worst of the gig economy imposed upon those who actually run the global market, like the world's farmers. So this is not going to end well. Wood burning is considered an alternative renewable fuel source, despite also causing climate change. The far right's hoped for a future is democracy-proof control of state governments through stuffing courts and gerrymandering. Our single-family living is a completely new construct, and in a climate-changed future, it's best that living arrangement became a thing of the past and soon. Paying for revolution with climate change causing fossil fuels can be politically problematic for resource-rich nations like Bolivia, which seek revolutionary social transformation through profits made by fossil fuels. Chileans took to the streets, forced to vote, and they will now finally rewrite an undemocratic constitution that was imposed upon them by a CIA-backed dictatorship. The U.S. is doing everything it can to hide the truth about its deadly role in the war on Yemen and its bombing of the Yemeni people. There's nothing to be afraid of with anarchism. All it is is challenging the status quo to realize egalitarian principles and foster cooperative, non-dominating behaviors. I mean, that's all it is. And as for Marxism, sure, it makes sense you're Marx-curious after tracing the roots of so many of our problems today back to capitalism. It's getting increasingly difficult to become excited about voting when you realize your complicity in the rotten political economy within which we live. The American dream causes climate change, as does our economic model of constant, unceasing growth. Oh my God, is Feral Atlas at feralatlas.org cool? F-E-R-A-L atlas.org. You want to know how the pandemic happened and how the next one will too? Go screw around at feralatlas.org, which may be the best way to understand the pandemic 
within the context of globalization. Polish women are rising up and guiding a nationwide revolution for women's rights, challenging the power of the far right-wing Catholic Church in the country. Hong Kong's historic pro-democracy movement is constantly under growing threats from China, and its support for President Trump doesn't help its standing with leftists anywhere. The imagined utopias of our minds are often islands as if we can get away from it all, but in reality there is nowhere to hide from our global dystopia, even on an island in the middle of an ocean. You know those new Amazon ads about education? The tools they're trying to sell are for at-home schooling, like the schooling during the pandemic, and making that learning experience permanent, which has always been the Republican market-based model for public schooling. So, if you like those Amazon ads, then you'll love teaching your kids at home for the rest of their lives. The global pharmaceutical supply chain, which is run for profits, not for people, is horrible for fighting pandemics, and again, its shortcomings were reported in today's New York Times as the vaccine is reportedly being hoarded by rich countries while poorer nations suffer shortages. Prison inmates responded to the pandemic with strikes at detention facilities of all kinds across the United States, not that any of those were reported on U.S. media. The idea that utopia cannot exist and pursuing it as a distraction from reality stunts our political imagination and gets us corrupt ideas like neoliberalism. Puerto Rico had a misleading non-binding referendum that was reported in the U.S. as showing how Puerto Ricans wanted to become a state when reality the majority want to be completely independent from the U.S. Far-right Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro's family and party got their ass kicked in local elections, which might mean Bolsonaro will be a one-term president, unless he steals another election by imprisoning his opponent again. Land equality is far worse than anyone thought and is the driving force of all the world's current inequality. Deep-sea mining may be the next extractive industry, and not enough is being done to determine if it will destroy ocean life. You know, life us humans need to survive. Architecture has pernicious totalitarian tendencies when it comes to social control. Epidemics are obviously nothing new, but they happen a lot more than you think, and their impact on human history has been far greater than you probably realize. President Nicolas Maduro may have won the Venezuelan election, but his popularity with the revolution is dwindling, as is support for Maduro's violent right-wing opposition. Even science can't help you win an online argument when the platform you are using commodifies information, so its truthfulness doesn't really matter. On today's show, we're learning how there are plenty of feminisms other than the one you are most familiar with. And tomorrow, we'll find out about the hundreds of millions of Indian farmers on strike from one of the farmers who's been participating in those strikes. That's what you and I have learned together over the past three months here on This Is Hell. We look forward to being back here in 2021 and continuing to discover our world around us with you. Coming up on This Is Hell... Feminism is not singular. In fact, there's plenty of feminisms to go around. And we'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what was the best thing that happened to you in 2020? What was the best thing to happen to you in 2020? We'll also be naming the second to last book in our list of favorite books to be featured here in 2020 on This Is Hell and interviews with their authors. So stay tuned in for that as well. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show, live stream podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Richard Norwood, live from the United States, where property has more rights than people. You can say that for mo most of the world as well. This is hell. Women around the world have recognized the disadvantages that have been imposed on them in a world seemingly controlled by men. Acting as feminists, they have sought out and found like-minded women around the world and shared their struggles while each time confronting new forms of feminism. Here to discuss with us the big global story of the many feminisms on our planet today, historian Lucy DeLapp is author of Feminisms, A Global History. Welcome to This Is Hell, Lucy. 
Thank you, Chuck. It's great to be here. I'm so excited about this conversation. And I will tell you that I only have 72 questions written down for you. So <laughs> Shoot, go ahead. So, uh, I'm going to read a little bit of a lengthy excerpt here just at the beginning. It's from the uh, beginning of your introduction, but I think it's uh, great for framing our conversation. You quote an 1886 letter from a woman in the British-ruled African nation, then known as Gold Coast, now known as Ghana, that was published in the local newspaper, The Western Echo. She writes, we ladies of Africa in general are not only sadly misrepresented, but are made the football of every white seal that comes to our coast. We have been sadly abused by people of such description, and because we have said nothing, they continue to abuse us with impunity. Although we have not white or angelic faces, we are capable of as high a degree of culture as any white lady. You add her name does not survive, yet her willingness to speak for we ladies of Africa draws our attention to her imagined community of American, or, sorry, African womanhood, and you provide the context of 1866 as a moment of intense colonial expansion. Some of the major European powers were annexing African and Asian territory at speed, giving rise to a violent world order in which racial hierarchies and norms of sexuality became more strongly policed and which radicals, nationalists, and anti-colonials would uh, contest over the coming century. It was also a moment when women's education was flourishing throughout the globe, their access to or coercion into paid employment was growing and the spread of the bicycle was inaugurating new mobilities and anxieties that would be epitomized in the bloomer wearing new woman cyclists. It offers a way into a larger story of the profound transformations of how women thought about and inhabited their bodies and lives. Is this imagined community of womanhood the result of both increased brutality against women and an increase in education for women, an increase in access to education? Did colonialism lead to both the abuse and education of women, even feminism? That's an interesting place to start because, I mean, yes, that reflects nicely your your introduction about the kind of complexity of uh, the circumstances in which feminisms emerge. Uh, yes, colonialism was a, um, a dispossession, a process of dispossession, uh, but it also offered certain kinds of uh, new forms of agency, right? A new way of imagining the world uh, in, a, in a kind of larger sense and, 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 and gaining a kind of ambitious, uh, aspirational sense of, of, of what women can be. So that's, I mean, that's why I wanted to start the book off in the 1880s as a kind of hint point from which you could look back into the, the, the ferment of the revolutionary uh, um, late 18th century into the, the 1840s, another phase of revolutions, but also look forward into the kind of the, the ever-tightening uh, uh, constraints of living in an imperial world order in the Early, early to mid 20th century and, and, and on into women's liberation. So it kind of provided a nice, nice ground in which to, to look back and look forward and, and, and an, try to answer this really, you know, challenging question of, uh, you know, across the world, what has feminism meant? What, what, how, how has it been developed in all these profoundly different ways? I guess what we have to do then is we have to define what feminism is generally for all of the feminisms, because I can't help but think uh, was it was fem- feminism something new that it had never been experienced in human history before but at the same time all feminism it is it seems to me is is uh, the idea of equality of the sexes equality for women and I would assume that equality for women had happened sometime historically before even if it hadn't been named feminism so what is feminism and is feminism something completely new historically Okay, well, that's a great starting point, because I think I would say, no, I don't think feminisms are necessarily organized around equality. So when I first uh, started studying history, I I did a a PhD, a doctorate, which was looking at a particular moment in 1911, when the first British journal that called itself feminist was first published. And, you know, 1911 is when the suffrage struggle is happening. And, you know, we, we might think we know what feminism means there. It's the right to vote. But the women that I was looking at who were part of this, this amazing journal called The Free Woman, first published in 1911, uh, they didn't think that equality was a, you know, a good organizing principle. They were interested in empowerment. 
And it, it might be more helpful for us to start with that idea of collective empowerment as being the kind of core shared feature that, you know, is, a, is across the, the feminist landscape. The women that I was looking at in 1911 said, we don't want to vote. Let's take our rights at the point of a gun. Let's not ask for them in a kind of servile way. They'd been reading Nietzsche. They'd been reading Max Stirner. They had this kind of um, elaborate idea of what slavery might be and what the superwoman might be. Really unfamiliar stuff to me at the time. It wasn't what I was expecting. And I guess it was studying their, um, their, their take on feminism that made me start to ask those bigger questions about, well, what did it mean across the world? Because it certainly wasn't anything that I could really identify with, neither in relation to like the suffrage of that period of the early 20th century, nor in relation to what I took to be kind of universal principles of feminism. So I'm quite comfortable with the idea that it's pretty hard to narrow down to kind of a set of principles, what feminism might be. I like the idea that it's always going to be about struggle and it's always going to be about women and at some points in time non-binary people the interests of women and non-binary people sometimes being grouped together and i like the idea that it's about voice and looking for you know a voice in their own affairs and in human affairs um about rejecting violence rejecting constraint but you know i wouldn't want to flesh it out in any more detail than that because i really do think it varies over time and place so great. Now I have seven more questions for you. Uh, so uh, when it, that, I think that's really interesting to think of it as empowerment and not as inequality because empowerment sounds more positive as something that you can attain and inequality is something that you're trying to overcome. Do you think inequality would then fall as a category un, beneath empowerment, that empowerment can lead to equality? Yes, uh, it certainly can. And it's, uh, equality certainly is the touchstone for some feminists at some time. But yeah, I agree that equality always has this kind of um, this sense, this like zero sum game of, well, you know, who, who, who are we going to take take away from in order to, to give equality? And I think the, the, the idea of empowerment and, uh, and, and freedoms uh, is perhaps um, like a more workable language of feminism. Uh, I, I, I always get asked by by people, oh, just tell me what it is. Like, just give me a really clear guide on like what I should understand by feminisms. And uh, I'm always reluctant to do that because I think you know we need to ask about the moment in which a, some a demand is made or a voice is heard. So that voice that you started out with, it's, it's great to hear those words. Who would have thought that you know more than a hundred years. Uh, after she wrote those uh, that, that amazing call for you know the the the, the women of Africa um, uh, to reject the white seals um, that it would be out echoing on the airwaves, um, but you know she would very would would uh, would not have called herself a feminist, would not have identified her position as feminist. I think that in pursuit of of, of asking questions of history, we can ask. Uh, you know, what what relationship it bears to later versions of feminism. But she she was not a feminist, right? She didn't have that vocabulary. She might have called herself a member of the women's movement, uh, although there's no there's no evidence that she did. Uh, she might have thought about the woman question. That was another way of framing it um, available in the 19th century. So, you know, even that language of, of feminism is quite specific to the 20th century. There's just a few people using it in the, in the late 19th century, but not very many. In fact, uh, in the, in the late 19th century in Britain, feminism is understood as a French word like feminisme, and it's defined in, in, in certain, certain kind of newspapers and debate and so on as being a more fashionable version of the women's movement, like the better dressed of the women's movement. Uh, so, you know, it, it has this wide variety of meanings and it's it's like a real chameleon term that is used in a variety of different ways. But let's yeah, let's keep our, our eye on the idea of collective empowerment and struggle, because I think we'll see those features again and again across our feminist stories. And I wonder if, if to what degree feminism is feared or opposed by others simply because, as you were saying, when it comes to inequality, it would seem like a zero sum game. And all of a sudden you have a situation where people are losing something. You must lose something in order for this to happen, which sounds a lot like climate change denialism. You must lose something. You must give up on something if you are going to address climate change. You must give up on your uh, the what your uh, standard of living or whatever the situation is. I, I just find that, that really fascinating that it's about something being taken away from you when you focus on inequality. Yeah, I think that's right. There's an intellectual um, assumption there, but there's also a kind of deeply emotional response 
to, to feminism. I mean, you know, you don't really have to say anything. You, you cited Rebe Rebecca West at the beginning, right, right, saying it's when I'm not a doormat. Um, you don't, you don't have to be aggressive as a feminist to be read as aggressive. And so people bring both intellectual presumptions uh, about the, the diminishment of, of, of men or of patriarchy, uh, but they also bring their emotional qualities of, of real fear, real sense of challenge. Because, of course, the gender order is one of the like primary uh, ways in which our, our social world and our, our economic and, and political world is organized. And challenging that is um, a real kind of a real stab, a real kick at the, the status quo. Is feminism, is it something then that is set in stone or should we just view it as a horizon, something that should always be an aim or a goal or a target, not just a set of demands that have been already written down and problem to be solved, but is it something like a, you know, we've had people talk on the show about a utopian horizon. We've had people talk on the show about a socialist horizon, about a communist horizon. Is it just a horizon to be attained but never to be met? Hmm. Well, it certainly is a dream. Uh, sometimes dreams uh, do come true, um, but mostly dreams are, you know, there on the horizon. I guess I prefer the idea that, and this is probably me speaking as a historian, I prefer the idea of um, feminism, and I, I developed this in the book, Feminism as a Mosaic. So that, I think, gives us a nice metaphor for a very tangible sense of the kind of the pieces of the feminist mosaic, the pieces that are drawn on. And the reason why I like that as a historian is because we can see that sometimes the same pieces are there again and again. So, you know, the feminism on the horizon, the feminist kind of vision of where we might go, it, you know, that sounds like we're, we're never going to get there. We can never reach it. Whereas I think of feminism more as a toolkit. It's a, a set of mosaic pieces which, um, you know, sometimes are used in many different places. They fall out of one pattern, they get inserted into another. Sometimes the picture we have of feminisms in the past is a very partial one. We can only see a couple of the pieces. The full mosaic is, 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 is not there. But nonetheless, we can still infer what the picture was. And just as, as we might imagine those pieces being reused, we can see tactics, feminist tactics, that pop up again and again. They're, they might mean slightly different things in different contexts. They might, you know, be more or less workable in different places. But we can see lots of the same ideas and um, uh, um, forms of contestation, forms of action, uh, strategies, um, uh, the fun, the, 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 the songs and so on. We can see all of that being recycled just as the mosaic gets recycled and the pieces are used again and again. Are feminisms about informing the public of injustices and once informed a belief that this will then motivate the public to act? Are feminisms more than an informational campaign? Well, I don't think that there's been many periods where feminists have wanted to kind of turn the struggle over to the general public or legislators or, you know, experts. I, I think feminisms have been profoundly about seizing the moment yourself, right? They've been about self-empowerment agency, about um, uh, looking internally. So, I mean, yes, there's always been a kind of an informational um, element. There's an intellectual history that we can tell, uh, which, you know, looks at different kinds of versions of, of, of what, what sort of information might be deemed relevant to a feminist struggle. But um, certainly feminism has also been about um, uh, self-empowerment, about looking at your own psyche, about trying to understand how you feel about things, about contesting systems. And, uh, you know, this, th these systems are very broad, right? Though I'm not just talking about political exclusion. It's not just economic exclusion. It's about things like literacy. It's about things like land ownership. It's about um, cultural presence. It's about uh, the body and what place that has in, uh, in, in the world and how the body is regulated. You know, it, it's, it's definitely much bigger than just a kind of a set of pieces of, of, of information. So what happens then when feminism mixes with representative democracy what happens when it is look at when it tries to adapt to rec, uh, representative democracy by having representatives fight their fight for them to fight with the a more national a larger perspective in mind what happens when there's that disconnect from a direct participation within feminism well, sometimes that has been a really effective strategy. So thinking here of um, like the classic example is 
is Australia, where there was a very strong so-called femocrat movement. In other words, feminists who had been sort of incorporated into the bureaucracy and who had sought to exercise the levers of power that you can get from access to local government or funding or, um, you know, being an insider. Uh, the same, I think, is true of some of the um, women's movements and feminist movements um, that we can see um, in, in the Soviet-aligned bloc historically. So the kinds of um, state-sponsored uh, feminist um, projects or women's projects that happen in Angola or in Mozambique or in um, uh, the former Yugoslavia. You know, there's a lot of women's leagues that are um, closely aligned with those systems of state power and state and, and, and representation. So not just in democracies, but in uh, non-democracies as well. The cost, of course, is um, the, the, the pragmatic um, compromises that have to be made. Sometimes uh, uh, feminist voices become kind of stooges of other um, ideological perspectives or, or just become bureaucratized. Uh, it can lead to a loss of momentum. Uh, but I, I think I wouldn't, in a doctrinaire sense, say, oh, no, you know, the uh, incorporation into um, formal politics is is always a dead end, because sometimes it's been a real source of of ambition and, and um, of, of, of leverage. And I think um, the Australian movement, where uh, fairly early in the 1970s, even in the 1960s, there was um, a good deal of funding made available for all sorts of feminist infrastructure. Um, you know, that was a moment where there were re really some payoffs although there were also some real dilemmas around being associated with what was a racist uh, state establishment. So for Aboriginal Australians, uh, you know, they, they, they really felt um, that they couldn't align themselves with a women's movement that, that, that was, was, you know, hand in glove with the state because of their experiences of, of, of dispossession and, and, and child removal and, and the, you know, the racist, um, even genocidal, uh, program of of the Australian government. So you know that's a nice example of where there's um, there might be very different perspectives on what the state means in any particular national context. We are speaking with Lucy Delap. She's a historian and author of Feminisms: A Global History. You can follow Lucy on Twitter at suff s u f f sixty six. Lucy is reader and deputy chair of the Faculty of History at the University of Cambridge. She is also the author of the feminist avant garde transatlantic encounters of the early twentieth century and knowing their place domestic service in twentieth century Britain. Do all feminisms view any diversion from their feminism? as potentially anti-feminist. Are, are feminisms, are they adaptable? Are they strict? How would you describe their adaptability to one another? Well, conflict is one of the kind of keystones of my story of global feminisms. There's uh, substantial amounts of conflict uh, within women's movements, within feminist movements, uh, and yes, of course, sometimes that results in really painful episodes where um, uh, people regard uh, another tendency as, you know, um, uh, impossible to work with or as, as pulling down the movement or, or, or what have you. You know, the classic um, narrative of conflicts over race, conflicts over sexuality, um, uh, co conflicts over uh, indigenous, indigenous identities and so on. Um, but I guess I would say that um, my take on it is that we need to normalize conflict, right? To recognize that there's likely to always be conflict and that conflict doesn't necessarily bring certain kinds of activism to an end. Conflict can uh, put activists in, into, a, into a better place and to um, uh, allow them to understand better the partiality or the, you know, the problematic nature of, of, of their politics. So um, uh, I think that the typical metaphor of feminist development which has been like the first wave the second wave the third wave the fourth wave um i don't know which wave we're in right now i I've, I've i've stopped counting personally but you know that tends to make us think in a linear way about um feminisms as though you know you just get these kind of se sequential waves that crash on the shore but i would say that you know the problem with the wave metaphor is it doesn't really do justice to all those different strands of, of very different perspectives that might coexist uh, at, at any one moment so let's look for example in the early 20th century where there were 
some elements of the um, women's movement in particularly in Germany and in Scandinavia that thought that um, motherhood and protecting women's right to um, bear children, whether they were married or unmarried, was a really, really important strand of uh, feminist struggle. And they were opposed by um, uh, other uh, feminist groups. And I'm, I'm coming back here to the ones I mentioned earlier, the 1911 Free Woman uh, Project, which was a kind of uh, Anglo-American project, um, where they were much more skeptical about uh, mothering. In fact, they were they were quite technical about it. They were sort of echoing what Shulamit Firestone went on to, to develop in the 1970s, the idea that maybe technology could take over and women wouldn't have to have babies anymore and that, you know, uh, they could be fed by machines or uh, reproduced by machines. And so, you know, you get these totally different um, uh, different kinds of feminist feminisms coexisting at the same time. And um, that's that's fine. And that's such an important insight for us today, where sometimes we can be um, uh, really brought into a state of paralysis by the prospect and the, the, the side of conflict. So I'm thinking here about the the conflicts at the moment in 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 feminist organizing between so-called um, gender critical or sometimes they're called by their critics transphobic feminists and the trans friendly uh, movement. You know, that debate about trans rights and trans inclusion and are trans women women seems like it's stopping a lot of feminist activism in its tracks at the moment. People just don't know where to go with that. But if you look back historically and you recognize that there's always been a great deal of conflict, there's always been um, uh, really quite sharp disagreements, that helps us recognize that, you know, this is just a, a process of, of, of listening and learning and, and hopefully dialogue. And you write that as the African-American activist Francis Watkin Harper's put it succinctly as far back as 1866, you white women, uh, sorry, you white women speak here of rights. I speak of wrongs. Harper wanted the women's movements to challenge the racial segregation of streetcars, but her white peers were reluctant to take on issues of racial exclusion. Is there a historical struggle then within feminism then that is about whether it is for fighting for empowerment of women or for everyone? Has that always been a constant struggle within feminism? Is this about the empowerment of women or is this the empowerment of everyone? Yeah, that has been a long-standing football that's been kicked around, shall we say. And I would say that, you know, focusing on that question of, um, of race and the inadequate response of many white feminists to the question of, of, of racial justice uh, has been a um, you know, a massive ongoing problem within feminist history. And it has led all sorts of um, uh, social justice and racial justice advocates to reject uh, the participation or the, the, the affiliation with the women's movement or with feminism. And we have to respect that, right? It's not our job as historians to look back and say, oh, actually, these, these people really were feminists. We have to take seriously the fact that a lot of people did not identify with feminism, and that's because they saw it as a colonial imposition or a racist movement, uh, or you know, a, a, a movement that that um, was ideologically liberal and rejected socialism. Uh, there are a whole variety of, of, of divisions there, but the ones about race are very, very hard fought, and of course, are very much in our in our minds today when we think about the well, the electoral landscape in in the United States, the challenges of decolonize and Black Lives Matter, you know, the racial questions are to the fore. And that's why I wanted to write a history of feminisms that really foregrounded the, the leadership of, of um, women of color and people of color, as well as working class uh, people and indigenous people to show this incredible variety of feminisms that develop over time and to um, try to displace the kind of white European liberal oriented um, account of feminism from being somehow the kind of linchpin or the keystone. So that's that was one of my key motives in, in writing this history. Lucy, I live in a predominantly Muslim neighborhood, and I have heard from so many women in my life and men in my life that Islam is sexist, is misogynist. And there's this idea that there cannot be any kind of feminism 
within Islam. And they, their evidence is, look at the Shador, look at the burqa, look at the hijab, look at the way that the women are walking five feet behind the men. That is their evidence of how there cannot be a Muslim feminism. Can there be and is there an Islamist feminism? Absolutely. This is one of the things that I wanted to um, uh, to bring out as, as strongly as I could, because I think, you know, this speaks to our, our, our problematic of today. Right. This is usable history for today. So looking back and recognizing that, you know, yes, there have definitely been patriarchal interpretations of Islam, but there are also just as visible historically, interpretations of um, what was sometimes in the Middle East called women's awakening that were seen as very compatible with uh, Islamic mores and Islamic precepts. So trying to um, decenter the idea of the, you know, the headscarf or other kinds of Islamic practices from this landscape of it's oppressive to women, recognizing that women have had a variety of responses to uh, head coverings. So we have figures like um, the Egyptian uh, feminist uh, Huda Sharahi, who was critical of the headscarf and who, um, you know, who shed it uh, as a gesture of uh, women's empowerment. But alongside her, you have people like um, Kasim Amin and other figures uh, in uh, across the Middle East and, and Islamic countries who have had a a positive response to um, the headscarf who don't see it as a symbol of um, women's oppression and who have uh, offered a, um, a feminist version of, of, um, uh, of, of Islam that, you know, captures, for example, the way in which around the time of the Islamic revolution uh, in 1979 in Iran, there, were, there was very, very strong support amongst Iranian women for the Islamic revolution because they regarded it as compatible with throwing off forms of colonial dictatorship and forms of authoritarian rule and you know, guaranteeing their, their, their personal freedom and their right to flourish, and that included their religious freedoms. Women were um, disappointed when in fact what emerged from that revolution was in fact an authoritarian uh, take and a, and a, a, a patriarchal uh, interpretation of what Islam was about. But let's not forget that moment of possibility when the Islamic revolution could have been a much more feminist affair. And I, I think that that is that that thread of Islamic feminism is is there across all times. And we can see it in um, uh, in in the very diverse forms of Islam, for example, in Indonesia and Malaysia, where um, women's movements have again and again found a, a productive synergy with Islam. You write feminism has often been a loan word deployed in a wide variety of places to label different kinds of gender politics. There was talk of feminism in Japan in 1910. Russian activists, however, preferred another term or equal writers when in the heady revolutionary days of 1905, they founded the Union of Equal Rights for Women. Across the world, there was fascination with this new concept, as well as suspicion of European or American influences. I want to ask you about those influences. Was feminism feared as some sort of a capitalist plot or colonial project? And was it? Well, let's let's separate out those two things. They're very interesting. Um, there certainly is a narrative that we could tell about um, feminism as developed in um, English-speaking or in French-speaking contexts as profoundly European or uh, Anglo-American, uh, and it gets sort of exported out to the world. So we could trace, for example, the the translation into. Um, Japanese of, um, you know, important, significant 19th century feminist texts like um, John Stuart Mill's The Subjugation of Women. Uh, we can see that same text or other texts like Mary Wollstonecraft's Vindication of the Rights of Women, you know, these classic European texts, we can see them uh, um, uh, offered around the world and um, circulating in Latin America and, um, you know, appearing in translation all over the place. That's a well-established story. But in a way, that's not the story that I wanted to tell because for me, the story is one of sometimes it's um, translation and, and, and the circulation of, of European texts. That's, that, is, that is definitely a thing. But also you have the simultaneous uh, coming to um, a, a feminist consciousness 
um, in both Western and non-Western or Global North and, and Global South context. So a nice example of that, you mentioned Japan, is um, in 1911, uh, you get the simultaneous publication in Britain and in Japan of their first respective national um, journals or new newspapers that term themselves uh, feminist. In, in Britain, it's the free woman. In um, uh, Japan, it's a, a text called Saito, uh, which, which is a, a translation of, of blue stocking. Um, and, you know, they're both quite similar, but we, we can't say, you know, one is prior to the other. There's no apparent c connection between those, those two projects. Japanese uh, feminists were just as inspired by their contacts with Chinese um, uh, revolutionaries and radicals and anarchists who were in exile, as well as their their connections to to the Russian um, anarchist movement. You know, there's a whole load of intellectual traditions and revolutionary traditions that are visible there. So, so we get this story of simultaneity of of um, the idea seems to be popping up all over the place, and sometimes we also get uh, an account of. Um, uh, the development in non-Western or, or, or Global South contexts of feminist ideas that then are um, made usable and, and, and transmitted to Europe or to North America or to these more developed parts of the world. Um, uh, I'm thinking here of one of my um, one of my favourite texts, which is Rokea Hussain's Sultana's Dream, which is one of the the, the texts I, I I discuss in the kind of in the section on dreams. Yeah, I mentioned earlier that feminism is definitely a dream. And, um, you know, Rakea Hussain's uh, Sultana's Dream is all about her vision of a, a land, she calls it lady land, where women are in charge, where men are segregated, where women have access to uh, not just um, kind of the technologies of peace, but the technologies of war, right? They're, they're ready to violently defend their uh, their homeland. They use lasers drawn from the power of the sun. It's a really fantastic um, uh, uh, vision of um, uh, a, a feminist utopia. Um, and that was published in 1905. And, you know, I think it's a, it's a really key um, foundational text, which is produced from colonial India and um, uh, represents, again, a, um, a Muslim woman's voice and is seen as compatible with Islamic traditions. Rokea Hussain says, you know, I want to recover the, the, uh, the longstanding tradition of women's freedom within Islam. So... Um, you mentioned also the, the the presence of colonialism and capitalism. So let's have a quick look at that, right? We, we said earlier that colonialism is, is both a, a source of massive violence and upheaval in the lives of colonized peoples, but it also brings new technologies and visions and ideas which sometimes um, um, fuel their agency and give them new possibilities. Capitalism is um, perhaps a darker story to be told. I don't think there's... Um, uh, many ways in which certainly the global south benefits from um, the, 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 the globalization of the 19th century and the commodity uh, trading and the, um, the forms of development, the very unequal, uh, unreciprocal forms of development that are imposed. But I do think there is perhaps a story about capitalism as sometimes a, a strategy that is deployed by women. And, you know, I, I focus in the book on moments where women embrace enterprise or entrepreneurship to found their own businesses, and the businesses are sometimes driven by profit, more commonly dri driven by um, political, um, the political desire to you know, circulate texts, to create spaces, to build resources behind change, behind the movement. And also, I mean, let's not forget to make women money because women by and large are poor. Most of the women that, that I look at in this system, you know, in, in, this, in this global history, can't take uh, their daily bread for granted. They need to um, uh, to get themselves uh, a living. So there is maybe a story about sort of the micro strategies of um, setting up cooperatives, setting up businesses, and um, these might be bookshops or print presses um, or, or different kinds of uh, feminist uh, feminist businesses that give us a kind of like a, a wider spectrum of ways of thinking about capitalism. Maybe, maybe as well as feminisms, we need to think about capitalisms and reflect on some being pretty rapacious and others sometimes having empowering elements.
You mentioned that Sato magazine, and you have a quote from a 1911 edition, an opening editorial in Sato magazine, which reads, in the beginning, women, women, sorry, woman was truly the sun. She was a genuine person. Now, woman is the moon. She is a sickly, pale moon, living through others, shining by the light of others. Is there a sense within feminism globally that there is some time that women can go back to, or at least there was a time that proves women can live for themselves instead of living through others? Because we've had so many guests on our show point out the problems of looking to the past instead of looking to the future. A really good example is the Green New Deal and framing things within a New Deal thinking of the 1940s and 1930s, I'm sorry, and trying to apply it to today. So is feminism, does, how much does it focus on a past where there was the empowerment of women that you seek? And how much is there a focus on the future of actually attaining that empowerment? So that's a nice way of thinking about it. And certainly we can look back. I don't think we can look back to times historically where women have you know, lived uh, in, in, in a profoundly free way. But I think we can look back to some really exciting periods where the kind of tempo of feminist organizing has really grown very, very fast and furious. And, you know, they're, they're the kind of heartbeat periods, if you like. So, for example, the, you know, the revolutionary republicanism of the, of the late 18th century, that was a time when many, many women um, sought to join the both the intellectual and the activist conversations around um, uh, gender justice and, and, and making change happen. Gender justice, of course, is not how they would have framed it themselves, but it's a useful way for us to look back. We can look at the the utopian socialists of the um, the early 19th century and think about their attempts to create communities of justice and cooperation and equality, which, you know, sometimes in practice were quite difficult places for women to live in because um, of their lack of access to birth control and all sorts of, um, you know, practical problems of how you uh, how you implement socialism. But nonetheless, were really exciting moments of, of exchange and, and, and revolutionary potential. If we look at the kind of anti-colonial struggles of the 20th century, again, I think we can see lots and lots of avenues for women to, 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 to discuss and debate their empowerment and link that to the empowerment and, and the liberation of their of their countries. So, you know, definitely there are those inspiring periods in the past. Looking uh, to the future and thinking about um, uh, the feminist future, if you like, um, I've, I've said already that I love the idea of the circularity of feminist history and the way in which it gives us little pieces of the jigsaw that we can draw from the past and, and kind of slot into to the future, if you like. It helps us um, understand that there's a longer trajectory and debate to these questions of like exclusion and dissent within the women's movement, ideas such as um, intersectionality, right? That's a, that's a late 20th century idea that, that helps us understand better how gender relates to uh, race or sexuality or ability or all these dimensions by which we, we live our lives. We can look back and go, oh, right, actually, this is something that women's movements of the past have, have always tussled with. And there's all sorts of ways of framing uh, the intersectional that date back to the 19th century uh, and and which which, you know, give us sophisticated ways of thinking about the future. And I think we we, we keep by keeping our eye on feminist history, we do get this this sense of inspiration, the sense of the usability of um of feminist history that in the way in which it continues to inform today. So, I mean, uh, you, you mentioned at the beginning in your roundup, your wonderful quarterly roundup, uh, the Polish women's strike and their, um, uh, you know, current ongoing attempts to contest the, the challenge to reproductive rights that um, has been imposed on them by the Polish government. And, you know, that's an inspirational feminist action of today. And it is clearly uh, drawing its own inspiration from um, feminist strikes that have happened across Spain, across Ireland, Iceland, the United States. You know, there's a whole history of feminist strikes that um, that informs what's what's going on in the women's strike today and which, you know, we, we can learn from. So I do think that there is... Um, this like deep well of inspiration that continues to inform and you know reach towards the the feminist horizon as you put it um, uh, in in thinking about where we go next. 
Lucy, this is a fantastic book, and everybody should go check out Historian Lucy DeLapp's book, Feminisms, A Global History. Lucy is reader and deputy chair of the Faculty of History at the University of Cambridge. She's also the author of The Feminist Avant-Garde, Transatlantic Encounters of the Early 20th Century and Knowing Their Place, Domestic Service in 20th Century Britain. You can follow Lucy on Twitter at Suff66, that's S-U-F-F-66. This really is an amazing book. And even feminists I know who have been studying feminism for a very long time would get a lot out of this book. This really is an incredible work, Lucy. But one last question for you, and our final question for all of our guests, I promise, is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write that you can trace the evolution of global feminist themes that span a remarkable range of concerns, women's rights to property, education and citizenship, pacifism, anti-fascism, the welfare and protection of mothers and children, social justice, labor rights and human rights, sexual autonomy, cultural expression, and reproductive rights. Now, the majority of those themes would be labeled here in the United States media and within the context of our politics here in the United States as liberal, if not left-wing, themes. Is there such a thing as a right-wing feminism or a feminism that leads to right-wing themes of nationalism, individual rights, gun rights, in opposition to taxes and regulation? Is there a feminism focused on right-wing themes? I think that uh, certainly the synergies between feminism and nationalism are really clear. And I mentioned, you know, the, an- the anti-colonial feminisms of the of the 20th century, and you know, some of those um, individuals uh, definitely were later enrolled into some quite um, problematic nationalist politics. If we look to the early 20th century and the suffrage struggle, we can also see you know, perhaps a a kind of curious alignment between some suffrage activists and later fascist uh, commitments. You know, we we look at the suffrage struggle and we can see marching and uniforms and, uh, you know, colourful mobilisation. And some of those same tactics were used by fascists and some individuals made that journey. So, um, yes, there certainly is a uh, possibility of of right-wing feminisms. Uh, The the Pankhursts, who were the kind of preeminent um, uh, suffrage family in, in, in the early 20th century British struggle went on to support the Conservative Party and, um, you know, to, to, to offer really quite sort of pro-patriotic, pro-war interpretations of, of what it, what woman's place was in the public sphere. So, um, you know, my, my own sympathies, I guess, lean away from those kinds of feminisms. Uh, but, you know, feminism is a very, very broad spectrum, right? It's, a, it's an eyeshadow palette with every colour in it. <laughs> I love that description. Lucy, thank you so much. I've really, really enjoyed our conversation today. And I have to say that I was kind of intimidated by having somebody on who is the deputy chair of the Faculty of History at the University of Cambridge. But I really <laughs> enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so uh, much for being on our show. It's been a pleasure, Chuck. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for your, for your brilliant questions. All right. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is hell. Just talked to a person from Cambridge University. Next sentence had the word bong in it. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gaff-tooth radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz, radio show host, too. Producing this week's show is Richard Norwood, or I should say today's show is Richard Norwood. This week's question from hell is, what was the best thing that happened to you in 2020? What was the best thing that happened to you in 2020? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. All you have to do is go to thisishell.com, click on support, see all of the ways you can support This Is Hell, all of our merchandise. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support as we are completely listener-supported. You can leave your answer to this week's question on our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we have to have your answer by the end of tomorrow's Thursday's show as we will be announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorch in the Moment of Truth. This week, Jeff tells how he'll win the war. Richard, please share some more of our listeners' answers to this week's question from hell. Yes, I can do that. Sweet. <laughs> awesome. Fabio says, I started running a D&D game for the first time in years, and I love my players. <laughs> you know, uh, I heard something the other day that is insane. Tell us. Vin Diesel yes. plays D&D. Okay. And he plays in a game with 
Dame Julie Dench. <laughs> Interesting. Yes. Continue, Richard. Uh, <laughs> Cody K says, I got to spend more time with my wife and kids, join my local chapter of DSA, and last but not least, got introduced to this show. Oh, there you go. That's something. Jack B says, lost my health insurance when I lost my job and got on Medicare. I'm being hounded by debt collectors for a $900 bill for a flu test from when I had, quote, good insurance. So um, I don't know why that's... Good? <laughs> How is that good at all? I didn't, can't follow that one either, Richard. It's not just you. Oh, that was... Are, are, am I repeating some? No, I haven't heard any yet. Okay, good. When, uh, when you do, I'll tell you. Okay, thanks. Cause, uh, I know, because it's screwing up, I know. Well... I think I figured out a problem. Well, some of these are from two days ago, but sometimes if people uh, uh, repl- reply or comment, they get bumped up, and then we, see, yeah. So you're just looking for the ones that have comments, and you're going to ignore those. Yes. yes, I see. All right. Uh, Badger and says, "Got it confirmed that most of my fellow citizens would rather die than see me next to them." <laughs> Nick A says, "Got a puppy." <laughs> That's the best thing that happened to Nick A in 2020. <laughs> Uh, and Joshua L. says, Danny Glover laughed at my gritty T-shirt that said, This mascot kills fascists. <laughs> Danny Glover laughed at that? I guess. Mm. I, don't know what his, uh, I don't really know his sense of humor. Martin F. says, I got to visit my nieces and their families in Springfield and watch an Alice in Chains <laughs> tribute concert. <laughs> That's the answer to his, was the worst thing that happened to him in 2020 last oh, week. Oh, didn't you read my answer to the worst thing that happened? <laughs> yeah. All right. And then Jim P says, should have invested, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> in anything, apparently, because he would have made a fortune. Yes. Mark says, having our country come together with the fine example of our president to work together and fight the pandemic in such a successful manner together, finally. (laughs) A friend of mine told me that his super far right wing mom uh, will not refer to the vaccine without calling it the Trump vaccine. (laughs) And she always says, yeah, I'm so glad we got that Trump vaccine to kill the China virus. (laughs) And that's why he's not going home for Thanksgiving, by the way. It has nothing to do with uh, (laughs) or or July 4th or (laughs) anything for the next 12 years. Peter N. says, Fainu, be that way. (laughs) Bradley R. says, getting blind, stinking drunk on MAGA tears. (laughs) Our lovely Pete says, he discovered that not giving a crap anymore is way easier than I thought. David S. says, my answer, monetize Anadonia, to a question from hell was chosen as Chuck's favorite. (laughs) Our Alex says, one summer night, my neighbors a couple houses over were having a loud, fun-sounding cookout. Suddenly a woman's voice screams, oh my God, oh my God, over and over and over again for 15 seconds. I could hear everyone asking her, her what happened, and... I started to walk to my door to see what she needed, but it just turned out Johnny Gill of 1980s R&B group New Edition liked her post on Instagram. (laughs) That was the best thing that happened to me in 2020. That's hot. Of course, Alex can't win because he's a member of the staff. And And, uh, our own Jeffrey says, avoided getting into a relationship. (laughs) And the last one that we have is Devin M. working from actually being a potential option. (laughs) I'm not sure. I'll I'll read that again and you can decipher it. Okay. Working from actually being a potential option. I think you were supposed to say working from home actually being a potential option because otherwise that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. You can still leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can email it to us. You can tweet it to us, but we have to have your answer in by the end of tomorrow's show. Following the moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin, when we will be announcing this week's winner. Don't forget this week's question from hell is, what was the best thing that happened to you in 2020? The person with our favorite answer gets to win whatever they want, any piece of our merchandise that we have. At what this if they have a favorite ounce? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's a different thing altogether. So, the 11th of 12 titles to make our list of favorite books to be featured here on This Is Hell in interviews with their authors is 
Tacky's Revolt, the story of an Atlantic slave war. What Europeans call the transatlantic slave trade was in fact not as much a system of trade as in commerce as it was a global war fought on several continents with those prisoners of war as slaves. To sustain slavery in order to prop up the newfangled ideas of capitalism meant maintaining a strategy of terror that was rooted in racism and violence and un unprecedented chattel slavery, the kind of racism and violence the market depended upon to survive. When we understand the era of slavery as a time of international conflict to enforce the wretched industry of commodifying human beings, turning them into investments and stripping their bodies of any humanity, we view the United States to this day in an entirely different way, not as a nation that survived despite the scourge of slavery, but survived because of slavery, dependent upon slavery, for its very existence, and when we understand what we see as a slave trade, as a slave war instead, that uprisings against slavery were commonplace, were the norm, not the rare exception, that keeping slave rebellions down kept white slavers very busy, to the point that they had to invent the police, the victims of slavery are no longer seen as weak in accepting their lot in life, but rebellious, even revolutionary. That makes the second-to-last title to make our list of favorite books to be featured here on This Is Hell in 2020. Tacky's Revolt, the story of an Atlantic slave war by Vincent Brown. And you can hear our interview with Vincent from this past January by going to thisishell.com and searching on the title or author's name. And, you know, when it comes to somebody's name like Vincent Brown, it's such a generic name that you'd probably find a whole bunch of Vincents or a whole bunch of Browns. I have a feeling that if you just put in the word tacky, T-A-C-K-Y, that it's going to come up in the search engine. Richard, who is on tomorrow's show beginning at our normal time, 10 a.m. Chicago time here at thisishell.com? Avik Saha, General Secretary of Swaraj, India, on the National Farmers' Strike in the... Uh, in India. There you go. In India. There you go. Yeah, like hundreds of millions of people are on strike. And we're also going to have Jeff Dorchin, right? And Jeff Dorchin will tell us how he'll win the war. Sweet, finally. So are you going to wear a suit for the general secretary? <laughs> no, I'm not going to. Richard, what's the best thing that happened to you in 2020? Well, I got to do a lot of landscaping at my house, and that was really nice. <laughs> That's it. That's very good. I'm glad you didn't say manscaping. That's very <laughs> nice to hear. Thanks, everyone who has supported This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com. Thanks to you for supporting This Is Hell. We really appreciate it. And uh, you can find out all the ways that you, too, can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com. Check out all of our merchandise, like the whole new Grand Black line of truckers caps, face masks, winter hats, and tote bags. Thanks to Dana, Douglas, and special thanks to the tithing-like commitment of Kilter. We cannot, cannot thank you enough for your support, because without your support, we don't exist. Dana, Douglas, and Kilter... Thank you so much. You can also support This Is Hell by becoming a subscriber to our weekly Patreon podcast that has a new monologue from me in a classic archived interview every Friday. Those cannot be found anywhere else online. If you want to hear our Friday Patreon show, you have to go to, fri- to patreon.com slash thisishell. Tune in to tomorrow's show, streaming live 10 a.m. Chicago time at thisishell.com, or listen to the podcast posted shortly after our live stream. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, podcast, live stream, host, whatever, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Richard Norwood. Richard, thank you so much for coming in today. Thanks to Lucy DeLapp, our guest. Thanks to Alex Jerry for booking today's guest. With my most sincere apologies, yes, I am a white dude, and but you got to keep in mind... I'm also a race and gender traitor. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>